Today we're going to talk a little bit about religion. I guess you might say that's about all we ever talk about. To most persons, religion is a church they belong to, or someone facetiously says the church they stay away from. It is a set of custom-made convictions to which the person subscribes and learns by rote. I'm sure that many of you, I should say many of us, because I'm a part of it, went to catechism school or Hebrew school or Bible study or catechism study when you were a child. You're exposed to a lot of difficult-to-pronounce words and studied theologies and creeds and rites and ceremonies and all the various things that make up religions. At its least effective level, religion is looking backward to biblical times and revering the patriarchs and the prophets who lived and taught. In other words, it implies this is the time when God walked the earth. Those were the good old days in religion. And for the most part, this kind of religion is what I call religion in retrospect. It's always looking backward to other days. At its most effective level, religion is the science of living in a universe of changeless principle. Man has struggled for thousands of years over what I call the great paradox of life. In other words, it is the perception of an orderly universe on the one hand and the fact of unbelievable suffering all around on the other hand. So in earliest times, man was trying to understand these things. There's always been a troubling question that man has asked, why? What is it? How does it work this way? Man has reasoned from earliest times that it was the will of God, or perhaps anger of the gods. And out of this was born the concept of another world, heaven, a happy hunting ground, out where the blue begins. Some, something to which you go after this life. It is just at this point that what we call the new insight in truth or the study of new thought has its inception because it is the refusal to accept the idea of a world created by God where we must suffer part of the time so that we can get away with not suffering the rest of the time. And it is the insistence that the only reason we suffer is that as yet we don't know how not to suffer. In other words, it is the realization that problems are not God-ordained, but the result of subconscious God-exclusion. So the new insight in truth is built on the principle that man is a spiritual being with the power built into his very nature to unfold his imprisoned splendor, that he does not have to be the victim of circumstances, but he always has a choice to react in, non -res in resistance or to choose the way of love and non-resistance. In other words, the realization that he may not be able to change people or conditions, but he can always change his thoughts about them. So as Solomon said it 3,000 years ago, as a man thinketh in himself, so is he. Consciousness is the key. So actually the place of consciousness is so vital in our experience that it could be said, and we're saying it today loud and clear, it's a one-word religion, consciousness. This is a word that is used ambiguously, superficially. Quite often a person will just change your consciousness, dear, and everything will be all right. Quite often after a person's been in the study of truth for a little while and he begins to hear this, he gets terribly annoyed. Change my consciousness, the idea. How am I going to change my consciousness? This thing is happening. It's here. Just change your consciousness. Everything will be all right. 
The point is, it's hard to define consciousness, and yet without it, nothing else in life can be adequately defined. You can't really understand what it's all about. You can't understand injustice. You can't understand the fluctuations of human experience. You can't understand the soliloquy of Paul, that which I would, I do not, that which I do, would, would not, that I do. We all go through this. I don't want to do it, but the devil made me do it, or something made me, unconscious pressures. Somehow I'm not able to do what I want to do. Consciousness is needed as an explanation of the way our lives fluctuate. Rollo May says, Consciousness is the intervening variable between nature and being. The intervening variable between nature and being. In other words, you are a spiritual being in potential, living for the most part in human consciousness, in the process of becoming what you can be. There's always that of you that is present, which is what you can be, which is what we call the Christ of you, the divinity within you. There's always that in you also that is very base and mean and the limited aspect of you, the primitive part of your nature. At present, you're aware of yourself somewhere along the path of evolution between human and the divine. For this reason, because of consciousness, every person is capable, you may think this negative, but every person is capable of beastliness and of saintliness. As we understand that, we, we become very critical of ourselves and of other persons. We don't realize that, that the person is what he is because in some way he is holding himself on that level by habit, by unconscious volition, some way, that's where he sees himself as being. That's where he identifies himself. So that your central I will always be modified as aggressive and cruel or as inspired and saintly. There's something of your nature that is consciously involved in making the choice. It is interesting that Uspensky, who was perhaps the best, the more important student of uh, Gurdjieff, deals with the role of consciousness through what he calls the center of gravity. In other words, he says, it is necessary that the center of gravity of everything shall lie for man in his inner world, not in the outer world at all. There is a fluctuation, of course, the focal point of consciousness. He says, the first aim an individual can have as regards his development is to create in himself a permanent I to protect himself from continual strivings, moods, and desires that tend to sway him. In other words, the need to discipline oneself at a point in consciousness above the wellness-sustaining level. We talked about that a little bit last week. The point is what Uspensky calls the center of gravity, the center of your focus of consciousness. If it is above the wellness-sustaining level, then you tend to experience health and harmony. If it's below the wellness-sustaining level, then you tend to experience deterioration and difficulties. In the Garden of Eden allegory of Genesis, emphasize allegory, because there are a lot of folks today who are involved in what is called creationism, which takes the Bible literally, and this is the day when God created the world and Adam and Eve were literal forebears of the race. The Garden of Eden allegory, Adam and Eve disobeyed God and ate the forbidden fruit. This is a story that's been oft told. And they hid themselves, for they were ashamed. And God called out, Adam, where art thou? Adam, where art thou? This was no vindictive God seeking out Adam for punishment, because we, we punish ourselves. It's the only punishment we can ever have, is a self-inflicted punishment. So that God was, God in terms of the divine law, was challenging Adam to look at himself. Adam and Eve were created whole, spiritual beings, but they lost their strongly rooted center of gravity. So they covered their nakedness. Again, this is a part of an allegory. They became centered in physical consciousness. The word which we have translated as where, Adam, where art thou, comes from the Hebrew ahi, which can be where, who, what, whence, how. It covers all of these. So that more than likely, 
the divine law was challenging Adam to look, look to his center of gravity, saying, what are you? What are you? Define yourself. What is the level of your center of gravity? What is the focus of your consciousness? And if Adam had been able to answer aright, I am a whole creature in God, really felt that and knew and know that, they would not have been forced to leave Edom. See, this again is symbolic. God didn't drive them out. They, send, in a sense, left of their own volition because it was losing sight of their kingdom of God potential and going out like the prodigal, where they ultimately had to find their consciousness level and work their way back. When we understand this in the context of wholeness, we see that this is not a time when man first dwelt in the, in the Garden of Eden in the kingdom of God consciousness and fell, as theology has told it, because this is the allegory that's talking about the creation, the evolution of generic man. And when man leaves the garden, it's the fall in the sense of, of coming from the laboratory into the workshop of human experience and the need for growth and unfoldment. Hegel refers to this as the, the fall upward, which helps us to understand that there's no devolution. It's just a constant progressive unfoldment of the within becoming the without. I love the story of the children in Sunday school where, which, which were asked by the teacher to draw pictures of Bible stories of anyone that particularly impressed them. So one little boy drew the story, drew the story of a great old-fashioned touring car and a man with a long white beard is, in, is at the wheel and the two, two young people are sitting in the back of the car. The teacher says, what is that? That's where God drove Adam and Eden, Eden out of the garden. <laughs> so we can become so literal that we tend to really lose our perspective. God didn't drive them out. In a sense, God was principle. And when we break the law in consciousness, we break ourselves upon it. So they could not possibly remain in this Garden of Eden consciousness because they had to earn it. As I've always said, success is not getting there, it's earning the right to be there. Earning the right to be in the level of the consciousness of oneness. And as most of us know, you don't get there by just saying, well, I'm going to be there. We spend all of our lives and probably many lifetimes in working this out. The other extreme is found in that episode where Jesus asked Peter, who do you say that I am? This was the same thing, but asking it from a different level of consciousness. Who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. This was Peter responding, and again, this is an allegorical representation of a historical event, which is what makes the Bible so delightful. So allegorically, Peter represents faith. So the principle of the divine within us is, is asking us to testify, as it were, to witness our level of consciousness. Who are you? There's something within us that is always asking this of us. Who are you, Eric? Who are you, Jane? Who are you, Bill? You respond according to your present level of consciousness. Peter had this flash of insight when he could see, behold the divinity, and he said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Our need is to see that in ourselves and to see it in one another, which is not so easy to do. It is an old teaching expressed in a personally symbolic way in the Bible that one cannot find integration as a whole person as long as he is sense-oriented. Now this is the story of the Israelites when they're spending their time in Egypt. Egypt represents the sense-orientation of life. Moses represents the upward surge, the, the ascending urge of man, the Promethean will, that which is constantly driving, pulling. It's like a force of gravity that's ever seeking to lift us up toward the light as there we find in the, in the tree or the plant, the sap flows up through the, 
through the uh, stem, through the, the, the vines, through the branches, out to the fruitage. This is the process of life, constantly growing. So there's a, an automatic and constant and ceaseless movement of spirit within us, ever seeking to express itself in fulfillment. And when we understand this, it's almost a miracle. When we talk about miracles, it's almost a miracle that we can never be sick. We can never fail to be guided aright because we have the built-in property to experience that, but we live in sense orientation, you see. So we're like the Israelites enslaved in bondage to Egypt. So that Moses represents that hidden urge within that is constantly seeking to lead you on. It's that, that something within you that motivated you to be here this morning in the first place. Not because you feel pious because you went to church, but because you're seeking to understand yourself in a spiritual sense. You didn't go to a ball game. You didn't sit home and listen to the radio. You didn't go out and walk in the park. You came here. And this, this symbolizes the desire to experience something more about your inner self. This is the Moses factor of consciousness. And before we awaken to even a modicum of spiritual sophistication, the attention is centered out there at the whirling circumference. This is where most of us live much of our time and where many folks live all the time, the circumference of life. This is where it's at. This is what's happening. What are you going to do about it? That's the way things are in the world. Before you can have any sense of spiritual awakening, you, you, you pretty well are enslaved to that level of awareness. But suddenly something begins to happen. You begin to see a perception beyond this. And you begin to see life at a, at a different level. You begin to see that there are other possibilities, other things to do. But this sense of enslavement to physical, intellectual, material bondage is what in Eastern thought is referred to as bondage to maya, bondage to things, to persons, to experiences laid hold of by the senses. In other words, you have sense impressions and emotions and desires, but you have nothing central to steady them. What can I do about it? There's no thing I can do. So your life has moved this way and that like a reed in the wind. There's no way to actually stabilize yourself. So you pray for a miracle. You, maybe God will help me. Maybe this will help me. Maybe if I get a different job, it'll change things for me. Maybe if I change partners, something, anything, to find my own center. But we, we are constantly working from the circumference, you see. In other words, we have these sense impressions we have nothing central to steady them between that which is going on within, that which is pouring in from the outside. Nothing permanent intervenes to bring order and meaning. This is the typical evidence of man enslaved to a human bondage. Symbolically, then, the Israelites were in bondage to a completely limited view of what they were. In this consciousness, a person remains almost dead to any living experience of his divine potential. This is the one that the poet refers to when he says he died with all his music in them. It's a sad thing that persons go all through life and never really awaken to the awareness of a divine level within them. It has nothing to do with belonging to a church or being religious. Many folks may be religious all their lives, learn the creeds and the catechisms and go to church and stand up and kneel when they're supposed to and still not experience an awakening of the divine self within, the awareness that there's something more to life. So expanding consciousness means broadening the awareness. Nothing changes. You don't go anywhere. You don't do something. You don't belong to something. It has nothing to do with this. It's expanding the awareness. But everything in your life responds to the way in which you see yourself. When you begin to see yourself and see things from a different level, then something has happened within you, opening up a new dimension. There are two well-known drawings used by Gestalt psychologists in testing students. One is the picture of an old witch-like woman. And the other is the picture of a rabbit. But if you look at the woman long enough, she begins to turn into a pretty young woman wearing a feather boa. If you look at the rabbit long enough, it turns into a duck. If you continue to stare at this thing for a longer period of time, it will change back and forth to what it was originally, and it will become nothing. Actually, we know that it's simply an ink blot, a series of splotches on a piece of paper, like looking at clouds and saying, that looks like a man, this looks like something rather. 
But you see, you may ask the question, what is the reality of the drawing? What is the reality of life? What is the reality of this experience? There is no single reality. You say facts are facts. That's the way it is, is it? It's the way we've called it. It's the name we've given it. But the thing always becomes to us what we see it as being. It's true of everything, everything. And in a sense, things do not really exist for us until we see them, and they exist as we see them. It's a startling thing, but this is a psychological truth as well as a spiritual awareness. So it's not really important what they are. But what is it? You all look at a painting in the art gallery. What is it? What's it supposed to mean? It doesn't mean. It is. But it is for you where you see it, according to your perspective. The revealing thing is where you are, the viewer, your level of perception will determine everything that you experience in life. So this, this helps us to understand how consciousness works. If there's a pattern of poverty within you, some folks are not aware of this, if there's a pattern of poverty within you, it means your center of gravity is below what I would call the all-sufficiency in God level, then you will begin to intend to see everything from this poverty perspective. You will see lack everywhere, and you will experience lack in all your affairs, or at least the fear of lack, which is just about as bad as the lack itself. But if there's a sense of affluence, if there's a healthy child of God entitlement of abundance consciousness, and you'll begin to see all things from that perspective. And you'll experience abundance in affairs, or you'll always feel prosperous regardless of what conditions may be. This is what we call the prosperity consciousness. Many folks have an unconscious awareness of prosperity, so things always work out beautifully for them in that level of life. And many folks, again, not considering whether they have jobs or don't have them, whether they have a lot of money or have nothing, many folks have a prosperity consciousness, or a poverty consciousness. So even the person of affluence, according to world evaluation, may always fear lack, always be a concern, spends his, his whole time looking at the stock market returns and looking at this indicator and that indicator. Is my money safe? Uh, am, I, am I secure in my old age and so forth? Other persons have a prosperity consciousness, a sense of oneness with the affluence of life, and he's always secure, and he's always rich in a full sense of the word, which certainly implies something much more than just material things. So it's true with healing. Some folks have a health consciousness, so that they're always, as they say, disgustingly healthy. Conditions may come, diseases may make the rounds, the usual flu and various types from various parts of the world are making the rounds and so forth, but they always are oblivious to this. It doesn't phase them at all. Other folks are sick consciousness, illness conscious, always going from one thing to another, always imagining it, even if there's nothing there, imagining that the slightest little headache or slightest little tension means I'm coming down with this or coming down with that, always ready to acquiesce and go into it, basically because of the level of awareness, the center of gravity in consciousness. So it is with justice, a person who feels that there's no justice in life. People are unjust, people are dishonest, you can't trust anybody. This person lives in an injustice consciousness, and all things relate to that, and they're constantly proving. He says, see, I told you, I, I just told you that was so, you can never trust these people. Other folks, folks they live in a consciousness of well-beingness and order and justice everywhere, trusting people, believing in people, and because they trust them and believe in them, they tend to draw forth that from the other conscious. Remember we said in the beginning that man is an intervening variable between the human and the divine. Any person has the potentiality of being honest and perhaps even if only intellectually dishonest. So here's a, here's a neutral person, as it were. You come to him and meet him. If you have an injustice sense, you can't trust anybody, then you don't trust him. And because you don't trust him, you tend to lay hold of his nature, push the right buttons that make it come out as dishonest, confusing, injustice, you see. But if you have a justice and order consciousness, you tend to draw that from the other person. 
The person may even say, I don't know why it is, but every time I'm with, with that person, everything goes wrong. I think the worst kind of thoughts. I don't know why it is. And the other one said, but every time I'm with that person, I feel so good, I feel so peaceful, I feel so loving. His whole nature fluctuates according to the way in which you deal with him. When we understand this and multiply it millions of times by all the relationships we have in life, you can see that it's hardly a question as to why we have such confusion in our life, because our, our center of gravity is constantly fluctuating from this point to that point. It is said that 85% of all illnesses are psychosomatically induced. 85% of all accidents are unconsciously invited. These are, these are expressed by people in insurance statistics and, uh, and uh, health analyses and so forth, but the more and more we're coming today, that that figure is going upward and upward until eventually we will know, as a true student knows, that 100% of sicknesses are emotionally induced. 100% of accidents, everything is caused by consciousness. Now, that's a hard one. Usually we don't want to accept it. And find especially difficult the words of Ralph Waldo Trine, who expresses almost a credo of the one-word religion. He says, within each person lies the cause of whatever comes to him. No disease can enter into or take hold of our bodies unless it finds therein something corresponding to itself which makes it possible. Many of us, if, especially if we're feeling sorry for ourselves, we want to run and hide when somebody expresses something like that. Because it seems to put all the blame right squarely upon our own shoulders. Now, I'm not thinking that, that, that we're talking about thinking cold and thus catching cold, and thinking disease and thus catching disease of one name or another. It's simply that the center of gravity is centered in the illness level, below the wellness-sustaining level. We become receptive, susceptible to various conditions and limitations, partly because, because of our belief in illness and contagion, our natural bodily resistance forces are neutralized. Thus, we are susceptible to this or that or the other that may be making the rounds according to human consciousness. See, the rule in terms of spiritual law is that consciousness always precedes experience. Consciousness always precedes experience. No matter what the experience is, some way in my consciousness, the cumulative awareness of myself, the center of gravity, it's not the truth statements that I know, this is where we get confused. We say, but my consciousness is high because I believe in truth. I've accepted the creed of truth. I've learned the catechism, as it were. I've memorized the statements. This is where my consciousness is. But that's not understanding consciousness. That's your intellectual acquisition. And many of us have an intellectual acquisition of a lot of truth. As I say often, without any sense of self-flattery, I have a, a knowledge of an awful lot of truth. But when it comes to meeting an experience, I'm just like everybody else. It boils down to what I really know. Not know about, but what I know, where I am really in consciousness. So in a sense, in that moment of difficulty, whatever it is, divine law is saying, Eric, what are you? And my response, you see, I say, well, I don't feel good. Or people are picking on me. That's where I am, you see. But if I really know, as Peter did of Jesus, thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God, really know it and know that I know it, and at least begin to work toward the realization of that consciousness, then I'm at least on the track of solving my problem. Otherwise, we don't really solve them at all. We simply postpone them. The greatest discovery of the past 2,000 years, that's saying a lot, isn't it? The greatest discovery of the past 2,000 years is that consciousness makes our life what it is. And as consciousness changes, so life for us changes too. This is what I would call the credo of the one-word religion. Consciousness is at the root of all things. So the great need of all of us is to know ourselves, to, to work for the sense of individuality, to know, for instance, that I exist. Know for yourself, you exist, you're here. 
You are spirit in the process of being you. You need to let go of your spiritual inferiority. We all have a little bit of it. Uh, one, I think, for Kunkel refers to this as a, as a God-shy awareness, a sense of, of feeling I'm not good enough and I, I'm not aware of the truth about myself. At the root of your being, you see, the problem is if you're, if you're experiencing difficulties, it's because you are in somehow centering in consciousness below the, the focus of, of, of love, the focus of truth. Reality, you see, is not out there. This is the transition we all have to make if we're going to really understand life. Reality isn't out there. You say, but it's there and seeing is believing. But seeing is not believing. Believing is seeing. I see it there because I believe it, because I understand it. If I don't believe it, if I'm not perceptive of it, then it doesn't exist. It's not there as far as I'm concerned. I can drive a certain way to work or go on a subway or walk down the block a certain way week after week, year after year, and pass a certain store or a certain person selling things on the corner and be oblivious of it. So as far as I'm concerned, it isn't there. Someone says, have you ever seen that? No, I've never seen it. So for you, it doesn't exist. It only exists for you when you see it, when you become perceptive of it. So reality is not out there. Reality is at the root of your being. You don't see reality. You don't see reality. You see from reality. Everything that you see, every level of awareness from which you see, you're seeing as a result of something in your consciousness, something that's given you that awareness, that experience, that background of knowledge. Jesus says, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Many folks misunderstand this. They say if you have a purity of consciousness, you're going to see God sitting up there somewhere on a throne. And yet the Bible says very clearly in other times, no man has seen God at any time, nor will anybody ever see God, because God is not to be seen. God is. God is the eyes that see and the consciousness through which to see. So blessed in the pure in heart, for they shall see God, means the person who is, has a purity of consciousness, a oneness with the divine flow, he sees from that consciousness, and he sees God in the sense that he projects God consciousness. It's like if a person puts on rose-colored glasses, he sees rose colors. Put on dark glasses, you see dark colors, because you're seeing from that awareness, from that perspective. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. So the point is, this is the key to changing consciousness. Well, we often say, well, if consciousness is the key to the troubles in my life, how do I alter consciousness? How do I change it? This is what we're doing all the time, trying to change consciousness. But the point is, if we try to change things or conditions or even forcefully try to make ourselves believe something else, we, we just don't succeed very well. The key to changing consciousness is changing how you see, learning to perceive rightly. The point is, the thing we ultimately have to acknowledge is that seeing is a projection of energy. We actually project something. It's like a searchlight. When you see, you turn on the light and you see it because what you see is in your consciousness, not out there at all, as far as you're concerned. You, know, you can argue this point, but in terms of reality, you see it because you see from some experience. If you don't, if you don't know it, you don't see it. There's a question about the little child before he's developed consciousness or any awareness of life. His eyes look out, but you see no recognition factor at all. There's nothing. You say gradually, he gradually develops the ability to see the conditions, but that isn't it. He's developing the mentality that allows him to see from something. And it's the case of which comes first, the chicken or the egg. But the perception comes first. And you see according to where you are, according to your consciousness. So the thing we'll ultimately have to acknowledge is that 
seeing is a projection of energy. So then we have to be very careful the energy that we project. We go around seeing things, oh, this is terrible, that's terrible, that's terrible. What we're doing is adding to the negation of the world. I've often said, and some, this shocks some folks, that when they talk about crime in the streets and the terrible uh, perversity that there is around in the community and so forth, when you talk about it and when you see it and you read it and you look at things in that sight, you are actually a part of the problem. As long as we're constantly talking about how terrible things are in the city, we're a part of the city's problems. Just as much a part, that's the shocker, just as much a part as a person who's out committing crimes. Because it's all relative. And as long as we see that, continually see it, and as long as that's the level of consciousness at which people are seeing conditions in the world, we create the conditions that make the results inevitable. It's almost that certain persons are mystically assigned to the task of fulfilling your expectations. You expect people to be bad. You expect, you, like the news, newspaper editor once, uh, the assistant editor came up and said, I don't know what's going on, what we're going to do. Nothing's happened in the world today. We don't have any news to print. The editor says, don't worry, it'll happen. I have faith in human nature. <laughs> as long as we have that kind of faith in human nature, then we're a part of the world's problems. Now, you can't tell this to everybody, and it may be hard for you to accept it. But put it on the back burner, at least, because it's certainly something that is very vital in understanding the truth. So as the poet says, that thou seest man, become to thou must, God if thou seest God, dust if thou seest dust. I point out often that the word I in the Hebrew and the original Sanskrit is the word I am, A-Y-I-M, which literally means fountain. The I is a fountain. The I is actually a fountain which pours forth from your consciousness. And wherever you look, whatever you see, you're projecting something. That which thou seest become to thou must, God if thou seest God, dust if thou seest dust. You see, when we're trying to understand the idea of consciousness, it's good to remind ourselves that we live in a world of our own mind. And we say that often, and you've heard it often, you've read it often, but take it into your consciousness again. We live in a world of our own mind. Things exist, people exist, experiences take place for you as you see them. And they don't exist if you don't see them. This is why we say when you're praying for another person, first of all, heal your concern. You say, but I want to help him. But you can't help him until you help him. And this him is, as far as you're concerned, exists as a him, or Peter exists as a Peter in your consciousness. You've got to change this before you can change that. Because this is where you are. This is your reaction. You're primarily dealing with the image that you have of the person in your mind, the image of your experiences. Dr. John Dorsey helps us understand this. This is a psychiatrist of Wayne State University in Detroit. Very interesting book, Living Consciously, The Science of Self. It's written in a very interesting style. But he says, in a way I can only be conscious of myself. I can never be conscious of some other person. Every kind of other is nothing but my own living of it. It is a part of me. Continued on the other side of this tape. Please turn the tape over now. Thank you. The other side of this tape was blank. So there is no recording on the second side.